Welcome to the Harmony Christian Church Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by today's message from Pastor Josh Shoemaker. Past several weeks since Easter, we've been talking about post-resurrection stories. So different accounts throughout Scripture where Jesus comes back after he has risen from the dead and appears and visits with the disciples and other people. And so we've been going through that the past several weeks, and I'm going to continue that here this morning. Um, If you have your Bibles, (coughs) go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we'll start in verse 1. Luke chapter 24, verse 1. It says, now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men standing by them in shining garments or stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he said, or or when he was still in Galilee, saying, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned to the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloth lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. All four of the Gospels share a little bit of a different perspective of the events that happened on Resurrection Sunday. According to Luke 24, Mary Magdalene, um, let, me, let me say it this way. In John chapter 20, it talks about how Mary went to the tomb on her own. In Luke chapter 24, it tells us that she may not have been alone, that there was also Mary, the mother of James, also Joanna, and other women that had accompanied her to the tomb that morning. What many scholars believe happened was when they had gone to the tomb together that morning, when they got to the tomb and saw that the stone had been rolled away, that at that moment, before they had their angelic encounter, that Mary Magdalene had already left to go inform Peter and John of what they had saw. While Mary was gone, Mary Magdalene was gone, that's when these other women had their encounter with the angel that told them that he is not here, that Jesus has been risen from the dead. And then the, the, the angel tells them from that point on to go and to talk to the other 11 disciples and to tell them all that had been done. 
So they do that. They go, they leave the tomb, and they go to inform the other 11 disciples. And they get there, they tell them all that the angel had spoken. In fact, actually another, I think it's in Matthew, it says that actually while those women were on their way, that Jesus himself appeared to them on the road and expressed to them that he was alive and that he, they needed to go and tell their testimony to the other 11 disciples. So they get there, they tell the 11 disciples their testimony of all that they had just witnessed, that Jesus is alive. And what does it tell us the reaction is of the 11 disciples? They don't believe them. They don't believe them. They, they're, they're idle tales, the Bible tells us. <coughs> Excuse me. They believe they're idle tales. Here are your world changers, ladies and gentlemen. The disciples of Jesus that walked with him for three years, and within that three years, Jesus told them over and over again, listen, I'm going to die. Don't worry, though. On day, day number three, I'm going to raise from the dead. And here it is, day number three, the women come to them, and they tell them all that had happened, that Jesus has risen from the dead, and they don't believe them. They don't believe them. Again, here are your world changers, the chosen ones that spread the gospel, and they don't even have enough faith to believe something Jesus told them over and over again was going to happen. And I want the, this is a little side note to the message here this morning, but I just want to encourage you that even if you've had doubts in the past, even if you have struggles, it does not disqualify you from being used by the Lord. Because here are the 11 disciples who spread the gospel to the known world around them, who to this day we are still reading their stories and we are still encountering Jesus through their testimony. And the day one of his resurrection comes and they don't even believe it. They don't even believe it's possible. That your doubt and your miscomings and your shortcomings do not disqualify you from being used by the Lord. Amen? Only two, only two of the disciples out of the 11 even bothered to check the tomb in the testimony, which I think is fascinating. But here, here we are. You have these women that come to these disciples, tell their testimony, and they don't even believe them. And here's the Mother's Day portion of my message here this morning. I think that this is a picture of how some in the church, some in certain denominations and certain belief systems, some in the church have done this to women even in our modern, modern culture. That God is using them to spread the gospel, the greatest message ever preached to the known world. But there are some in our world, in our modern culture, in our modern denominations who would like to shut the testimony down of women because of a few verses taken out of context. And literally half of the voice of the kingdom is being silenced because they misunderstand a few scriptures. And I just wanna encourage the women in the room here this morning, your voice is important. Your voice, your testimony is important in the kingdom that the church needs your leadership gifts. 
The church needs the revelation that comes through you by the, by the voice of the Holy Spirit. That you, you don't need to be silent anymore in the world because the world needs your testimony. The kingdom needs what you have to offer. Amen? that you are empowered, that Jesus did not have a problem, that, that the disciples may have had a problem, their culture may have had a problem, and certain denominations and belief systems, even in our modern culture, may have a problem with, a, with women speaking in the kingdom. But listen, Jesus didn't have a problem. Get this. The first person, the first group of people to preach the most important message in the entire world was a group of women. They were entrusted with the initiation of the gospel to the world. That when Jesus chose to appear in, in, in his post-resurrection form, when he, when he chose to appear after raising from the dead, he didn't go to John. He didn't go to Peter. He didn't go to any of the other disciples. Who did he go to? Mary. Jesus didn't have a problem with women having a voice in the kingdom. And I wanna tell you that your voice matters. It's important. And we need your leadership. We need your revelation. The church needs your gifts, amen? These women become the first to preach the greatest message that the world has ever heard, that Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive, amen? While the women, these women were on their way to tell the disciples what the angel had told them, Mary, has already informed Peter and John of her testimony that the stone had been rolled away. They still don't realize yet that Jesus has risen from the dead. Their thinking process is still that somebody has taken the body of Jesus. So they start running back to the tomb. This account is in John chapter 20. It says that the Mary and Peter and John begin to run to the tomb to see what's going on. And I love John chapter 20, verse four. It says, so they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. I have a little picture to show you there. John, I won. Peter, who's ever going to know? John whispers, everyone Why is this verse in there? Why is it important for us to know that John beat Peter in a foot race? Other than the fact that John wrote this gospel <coughs> and wanted everyone to know who was faster, right? That's one theory, that's possible. There could be some other reasons why this little detail is inputted in scripture. We know, uh, or we can assume uh, by uh, reading actually the next chapter in John chapter 21, when Jesus encounters the disciples and Peter on the, on the shore of Galilee, when they're out fishing. And we talked about this several weeks ago. They're out fishing and they see Jesus on the shore. There's a verse in that, in that, that passage where it says that when Peter realized it was Jesus, it says that there, there's two different ways you can look at that. The Greek text 
tells us that he was naked, and so he puts back his garment on and then jumps into the water, right? Well, you can, you can do that. Why, why you go fishing naked, I'm not sure. Maybe it was a cultural thing, or I, I don't know. The Aramaic text of a translation of John chapter 20 tells us that he wasn't necessarily naked, but that he was, because he was athletic or he was physically fit, that he jumped into the water and swam to Jesus. So you can, you can believe or look at whichever translation you want. Either way, whether it was because he was athletic or because he was naked, he was obviously comfortable with his body, right? So it could be that Peter was physically fit or was, was athletic. So maybe, maybe what John includes in here is, is this, is, is for us to understand that it was unlikely that John would beat Peter in a foot race, right? So maybe it was unlikely that, that John would beat Peter in a foot race. So that could be a possibility. What we do know, however, is that John did beat Peter in the foot race, which tells us something. It tells us that Peter may have been hesitant to get to the tomb. That maybe it was put in here for us to see that while John didn't hesitate at all, he got there first. But Peter, maybe while he was on his way to the tomb, began to remember what had just happened a few days ago. That the last time he saw Jesus, the last time he looked Jesus in his eye, he had just gone back on his vow that he would defend him to the very end. That even if all of the other disciples left, Jesus, I will not leave your side. That I will die with you. And the last time his eyes met with Jesus, he had just denied him for the third time that evening. So maybe, maybe this scripture is put in here, not just for John to brag to the whole world that he beat Peter. Maybe it's telling us something. Maybe it's telling us that there was something in Peter that was hesitating to get to the tomb. Because Peter, at this point, still did not know where he stood with Jesus. When I get there, if he is alive, if I do see him, what's he going to say to me? If I do see Jesus, if our eyes lock again, how is he going to feel about me? Knowing my mistake, knowing my failure, how is he going to feel about me? So Peter was hesitant to get to the tomb. And we all know the words of these worship songs that Jesus loves me. We've sang it our whole lives since we were kids. Jesus loves me, this I know. We know the scripture verses that his love is unfailing and never ending. We know all that his love is unconditional. But sometimes I think we still fall into the trap as Peter may have been falling into in this moment of believing that he loves like we love. That his love is conditional like our love can sometimes be. That yeah, Jesus, you may love me unconditionally as long as I'm acting right. As long as I'm doing things, I know I'm supposed to, but, but Jesus, how can you love me if I've just looked at pornography? Or Jesus, I know you love me, but man, do you love me with the same level if I've just 
been divorced or I've lost my temper or maybe I haven't gone to church for a little while or maybe I haven't read my Bible or prayed for a while and I've been kind of distant and I haven't been, I haven't been pursuing you like I should. Jesus, I know you love me when I'm doing the right thing, but Jesus, do you, do you really love me at the same level and measure if I failed? And sometimes like Peter, when we failed, when we've fallen short, when we've messed up, sometimes it causes us to hesitate. Sometimes it causes us, to, okay, if I go back into the prayer closet today, am I going to face a God of love or am I gonna face a God of wrath? What, what kind of Jesus am I gonna get if I look him in the eye again knowing that I had just failed? Because listen, that's how we love ourselves, isn't it? We feel good about ourselves as long as we're doing good, but if we fail, man, we, we, we become our own worst enemy. And sometimes we believe that this is how Jesus reacts to us, even though we may not say it, we may not admit it, we know the right words, but deep down we wonder and we hesitate. Jesus, how do you feel about me? His love really is overwhelming. It really is unconditional. The Bible tells us that he loves us with the same measure of love that the father has for the son. Peter may not have known where he stood with Jesus, but John did. Peter may have been hesitant to get to the tomb, but John knew exactly where he stood with Jesus. Because the writer of John, we know this because the writer of John, as he is writing the book of John, he doesn't even use his own name. It's the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loves. John the beloved. He knew exactly where he stood with Jesus. He, when he's writing, again, when he's writing the book of John, this becomes so a part of his identity that I am the one who Jesus loves, that he doesn't call himself John. He doesn't call himself an apostle. He doesn't call himself a disciple. He doesn't do any of those things. His title that he gives himself, who he identifies himself as, is the one whom Jesus loves. And because John was convinced of his identity, that, that, that being loved by Jesus wasn't just a song that he sang and it wasn't just a scripture verse that he memorized, but it was who he was so much so that that's who he introduces himself as. And because he knew who he was, there was no hesitation on his part to get to the tomb. He ran as fast as he possibly could, and he made sure that he would be the first one to get to that tomb to look in to see if Jesus was standing there. And I love what it says on the next few verses. It says that John gets to the tomb, he looks in, and he sees the linen cloth that Jesus was wrapped in laying there empty, and the Bible says this, and he believed. No hesitation. All the other 11 disciples or 10 disciples, every other one of them, 
would not even believe the report of the women. They would not believe the encounter that they had. They, they refused. Their hearts were hardened to believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. But one look from John the Beloved, the one who knew who he was, knew how Jesus felt him, one look, instantly he knew Jesus was alive. He didn't need an angelic encounter. He didn't even need Jesus standing in front of him. He believed because he knew he was loved. And if Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead, then he was going to rise from the dead. When you know who you are in Christ, when his love becomes not just, again, not just a song that we sing on Sunday morning, when his love becomes more than just a scripture verse that we memorize, but when it becomes your identity and where you live from, I'm telling you, you will run further, you will run faster, you will believe, uh, you will believe deeper than anyone else. You will be able to go into the places of the kingdom and the places of the Spirit, and the places of his love, that those who are hesitant will not be able to enter. When your identity becomes, I am the one who Jesus loves. I am beloved. When John 17 becomes who you are, that I am loved with the same measure of love that the Father has for his Son, Jesus. His love is not conditional. It really is overwhelming. It really is unconditional. It really is reckless. This is the love of God. And when the revelation of the love of God becomes more than just a song or a Bible verse, it becomes who you are, then there will be no hesitancy you will run faster, go deeper, and believe greater than those who are still thinking that they even have the ability to disappoint him. Don't miss that last statement. Some of you still believe you have the ability to disappoint God. You don't have the ability to disappoint him. If he loved you so much that while you were yet sinners, he died for you. Before you ever chose him, he chose to love you. It is impossible for you to disappoint the father. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Brennan Manning says this. He says, my deepest awareness of myself is that I am deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I have done nothing to earn or deserve it. I am deeply loved by Jesus and I have done nothing to earn or deserve it. Which means this, if I have done nothing to earn or deserve it, then I can do nothing to lose it. If I've done nothing to earn it, then I can do nothing for that to be taken away, that he loves you. Church, if you hear nothing else this morning, hear this, he loves you right where you're at. Before you get your act cleaned together, before you get it all right, before you walk like you know you're supposed to walk, right now in this moment, he loves you, he loves you, he loves you. You are beloved. What shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble or hardship, shall principalities or powers or demons? No, none of these things can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. 
Some may say that if you preach this kind of love, <clears throat> if you preach this kind of love, that people will throw off restraint, right? It becomes cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer would say. Cheap grace that, that allows you to act however you want because if they believe I can do whatever I want and God still loves me, then why should I live holy? Why should I live right? And that's the argument some people have against preaching this kind of unconditional, unrelenting kind of love. But let me ask you a question. Which kid in the natural grows up better? The one who always had to fight to earn the approval and the father's love? Or the one who knew he was loved regardless of his performance? Which son grows up to be a strong, secure man? The one who was constantly trying to earn his father's love or the one who knew he was loved regardless of his performance? It's an easy answer, isn't it? It's the one who knew he was loved unconditionally. It's the one who knew that he did not have to perform for his father to accept him or to love him. Yes, sometimes this is how we treat God, that unless we perform, he does not accept us. But I'm telling you, that's not the father that he is. He's the one who loves you unconditionally. Despite your performance, he loves you. And let me ask you this, which of those two sons is more likely to have a relationship with his father? The one who never felt like he could earn the approval or the one who knew he was loved regardless of performance? I'm telling you, the one who comes home on the holidays is the one who knew he was loved. So love, this kind of love doesn't cause us to cast off restraint. This kind of love actually causes us to draw closer. It causes us not, not to say, hey, he's going to love me no matter what, so I'm going to do whatever I want. No, 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 no. If my father loves me, then I want to live up to that love. And I, wanna, I want to, I want to uh, honor my father because he loved me unconditionally. It doesn't make us cast off restraint. It actually causes us to want to draw closer and to please him in every single way. So I'm telling you again this morning, you are loved with the same measure of love that Jesus loves, that the father loves the son with. You are beloved. You are beloved. And when we get that revelation, there's no hesitancy. There's nothing holding us back. As Peter and John get to the tomb, they check out the tomb, they see that Jesus isn't there. The Bible tells us that after they see that, they go back to their homes. They both leave the tomb. And as they go back to their homes, Mary stays behind. Mary stays behind. John chapter 20 tells us that Mary is there at the tomb by herself. She's got these things running through her mind that Jesus has died, but now his body is missing. And she believes that someone has stolen his body. 
And as she's there in the alone in the garden, contemplating these things, the Bible tells us that she begins to weep. She begins to cry. And she said, the Bible says that she takes one last look into the tomb. And this time when she looks in the tomb, the tomb isn't empty, but there's two angels sitting in the spot where Jesus was laid. And the angels ask her, Mary, why are you crying? And she still is not realizing what's happening. <clears throat> and she says that they have taken, somebody has taken my Lord. Somebody has taken my Savior. And after she says those things, it says that she, she turns around and begins to walk away. And as she turns around, there's a man standing there. And Mary is still weeping. And the man asks her, he says, he says, why are you crying? And she still doesn't realize who it is. She's still overcome with emotion. And so she thinks that this man is the gardener. And so she tells him, she says, somebody has taken the body of my Lord. And she says, sir, if it's you, if you have taken him somewhere, please tell me where he is so that I can go and be with him. And then the man says one word. He says, Mary. That's all he says. He just says her name. And when the man says her name, Mary's eyes open and she goes, Rabbi. She realizes it's Jesus standing in front of her with just one mention of her name. There's a story I want to share about Martin Luther King Jr. actually. He's kind of in the height of his um, stand against injustice. He's been getting threats, getting bricks thrown through his windows. And he, this one evening was home and he had just put his kids to bed. He goes out into his living room and he gets a phone call. He answers the phone and there's a man on the other line who begins to make threats to him. He says, Martin, we've, we've watched what you're doing. We've heard what you're saying. And he said, Martin, if you don't stop preaching what you're preaching, I'm going to burn your house to the ground. And I'm going to kill you and I'm going to kill your kids. Martin hangs up the phone. And he's just sitting there in the silence. And he begins to pray and he says, he says, Father, he said, God, I've done what you've asked me to do. I've grown up in church. I've known you my whole life. I've preached your justice. I've preached your love, your forgiveness to all of these people. And he says, but now all of these things are coming against me and I don't know what to do. And he said, but Father, I, I've realized this one thing. God, I've, I've never actually heard you say my name. I've never actually heard you speak my name to me. And God, in this moment, I just need to hear you say my name. I just need to hear you say my name. And as he was sitting there crying in the silence, he hears a voice. And the voice says, you're not alone, Martin. 
you're not alone, Martin. And it says, I'll never leave you, Martin. And then when he heard the voice of God say his name, peace like a river flooded his soul. For those who are genuine lovers of God, for those who know who they are in Jesus, that they are beloved, that they are the one whom Jesus loves, when that becomes your identity, all you need, even in times of deep darkness, even in times of, of, of pain and uncertainty, just the whisper of him saying your name is enough. It's enough. Martin didn't need another step. He didn't need to know that everything was going to be okay. He didn't need to know any of those things. He just needed to know that his father knew his name, and it was enough. It was enough. And Mary, who is now in this season where she is in darkness and she is lost, she doesn't know what to do. Just her name, just Jesus saying her name and knowing that he was there was enough for her. The Bible tells us that when he said her name, that Mary calls him Rabbani, and then she goes and embraces Jesus. She just, she just hugs him. And Jesus says this in the next verse, in John chapter 20, verse 17. Mary says, or Jesus says, Mary, don't hold on to me now, for I have yet to ascend to God. Then he says this, I've yet to ascend to God, my father. And he's not only my father and God, but he's your father and God. Now go to my brothers and tell them what I've told you, that I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Notice the emphasis Jesus puts on there. He's my father but he's not just my father. He's your father. Go tell, and then he, he says this, go tell my brothers. This is the first time in the book of John where Jesus doesn't call the disciples his disciples or his students or his friends. He calls them his brothers. This is the first announcement that Jesus gives after raising from the dead. It's not, hey Mary, guess what? You don't have to go to hell anymore. Or Mary, guess what? You get a mansion, right? You get, you get to walk on streets of gold, which is awesome. But listen, after five minutes of seeing the streets of gold, it's going to get pretty boring after all of eternity, right? There's got to be more than just streets of gold and not going to hell. Amen? That's all great, but there's got to be more. Jesus doesn't come out and, not, and, and announce this. This is not the first thing he says. What's the first thing he says? He says, Mary, I'm going to my father, and guess what? He's your father too. I'm going to my God, and he's your God, right? This is what Jesus chooses to announce, the first message that he preaches 
His first announcement after the brutality of the cross, three days in the grave, and his glorious resurrection is this. You are in the family. You are in the family. That the communion that I share with the Father, Son, and Spirit, that you are partakers of that. That you are partakers now of the divine nature of God. This is the good news and the announcement that Jesus makes. You are in the family. You belong to us, is what he is saying. You belong to us. He's your father, which means you have his DNA. You have his DNA. You were created originally to be image bearers, and, image bearers, and guess what? You're image bearers once again. That you are partakers of the divine nature. You carry the father's DNA. He's my father, but he's not just my father. He's your father too. And church, I believe that sometimes we use this language, we get used to this language that he is Father God or, or we pray Father in heaven or whatever it may be. And we use it so often that we lose, we lose the, the potency of that statement. That it's not just jargon. It's not just some Christian nuance. You are a son and a daughter of God. He is your father. You have been regened, it says, um, um, and, and I believe First John, that you have taken on his, his uh, divine nature. That is who you are. This is the announcement that Jesus gives. This is the first time in John's gospel, as I said, that he calls the disciples brothers. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. He is not just my father. He's your father as well. This is the encounter that Mary and Peter and John have very early on that Sunday morning. And this is the announcement. You are beloved. And you are in the family. You belong to us. Let's go ahead and stand together this morning. Jesus. Father, if there's anyone in the room this morning that is hesitant, that Father, they may know the songs, they may know the scripture verses, but Father, there's something on the inside of them that says that there's, there's something in the Father's love that's being held back from them. God, I pray that today their identity would be restored. God, that the, 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 words, that, the words that the Father loves them would not just be words to them, but Father, it would be revelation to them. And Father, that today they would walk out of this place Father, that their identity would solely be in the fact that they are the ones dearly and deeply loved by the Father. Father, what confidence does that give us to know where we stand with you? What confidence is birthed on the inside of us? What boldness is born on the inside of us when we know that we are loved with the same measure of love that the Father has for the Son? when we realize that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God.
God, that, that revelation doesn't cause us to hesitate, but it causes us to run faster and further than we ever have before. So Father, I pray that that revelation would rest on every heart here this morning, Jesus. Hallelujah. And Father, I pray that the revelation that we are in the family. God, that's the greatest news ever told. That's the gospel, is that we have been established once again in the relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. That you live in us and we live in you. Father, that we are in one another and we have communion together with the Father. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you, Father, once again, for all you have done for us on the cross, that you have made a way for us to be reestablished into the family. And we are image bearers of the Father. Hallelujah. Jesus, we just thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more messages like this or information about our church, please visit harmonychurchfamily.org.